I should have said this first, but good morning, Riverstone. I am grateful for the invitation to share from God's word this morning. And we are going to be continuing in our study of Ezra Nehemiah. And I'm going to ask those with Bibles in hand if they would come forth. And if you are in need of a Bible, they will make sure that you get one. Just indicate so to them. If you do not have a Bible of your own and you would like to take this as a gift from Riverstone Church, please do so without reservation. We are glad to get the Word of God into the hands, but more importantly, into the hearts of people. Well, would you join me in a moment of prayer before we get into our message? Our Father, as we have already read from your Word, we want to have hearts that are opened to you and not hardened when we hear your voice. We thank you for your inscripturated word inspired by your spirit. And we pray that by his power, you would illumine our minds and open our hearts that Christ and his glory and his sufficiency, his beauty and his promises would become precious, even more precious to us. May we see him with greater clarity and follow him with greater zeal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been working our way through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we left off with a look at the wondrous providential work of God through a series of royal decrees. Don Cheney led us through how the work of rebuilding the temple was threatened and for a time even ceased due to opposition from people who were surrounding Jerusalem. An official, you may remember from last week, named Tetanai, asked the Jews who authorized them to rebuild the temple. They told him that this work had been originally decreed by Cyrus, and Tetanai reports back to Darius, who is now king of Persia, and says this, you should check this out, Your Majesty. Darius orders that a search be made to see if, there, if this is true, and sure enough, there is um, a decree that is found that Cyrus had written that the Jews who had been in exile on account of their sin that God had allowed to be taken originally to Babylonia, Cyrus issued a decree that any who wanted to go back to Jerusalem could, for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And not only that, Cyrus also had ordered that all of the utensils that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken from the temple were to be returned. This news is sent back to Tatnai, who is told to let the rebuilding continue and to daily provide whatever the priests need for their service of offering sacrifices and burnt offerings to their God. And, added Cyrus, if anyone stands in the way of the continuation of the temple's rebuilding, he was to be impaled on a timber taken from his home and his house was to be demolished. With that incentive, the work continued unhindered. The temple was completed, 
and the Jews joyfully celebrated its dedication to the Lord. And we looked at that in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, leading into where we're going to be focusing today. But just by way of reminder, we read there, they offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Now, if you were here last week or you watched online, you might recall that um, Don said that I was given one paragraph. A paragraph that consists of four verses. And I know what some of you thought when you heard that. One paragraph? Four verses? How long can he preach? <laughs> well, if you ask that, that tells me something about you. And that is that you know very little about me. But seriously, while we're only going to be looking at Ezra chapter 6, verses 9 through, 19 through 22, there is a lot packed in them. But this will be a slightly briefer message than usual. So let's pick up in Ezra chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. But we're only going to read three of the four verses for the time being. There we read, the exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel, ate the Passover. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I actually read 22, testing you. A few observations that I want to draw our attention to in this passage. First, the word exile or exiles occurs three times in three successive verses. Verses 19, 20, 21. Which should at least cause us to question, why this emphasis on the fact that we're talking about exiles? This deep into the book, don't we already know that we're talking about those who had been exiles, who had returned to Jerusalem? People who had been captive in another land and were brought out to be brought in to a land that God had given? Does that sound familiar? 
Hmm. Well, keep your finger there, chapter six, and let's revisit the very first chapter of the book. You will have to use your physical Bible because there's not a slide for this, but I want you to look at chapter one of Ezra, and particularly verses two through four. This is part of the decree that Cyrus had given allowing the Jews to return for rebuilding the temple. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. A king granting permission to the Jews who had long lived in captivity in his domain, giving them the permission, the freedom to leave. And to assist them, the citizens of that kingdom, giving them goods to support them on their journey and items with which to worship their God. Hmm. That should ring a biblical bell too. That sounds something like the Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt, when the Jews, after having spent 430 years as slaves under Pharaoh, were miraculously liberated by God. And on the evening of their departure, they asked the people of Egypt to provide them with silver and gold and clothing, which they willingly gave them for their journey. Why the emphasis on exiles in Ezra 6? I believe, and I'm far from being the only one, that the author of Ezra, Nehemiah, and therefore ultimately God, wants us to see what's going on here as a new exodus. This is one, how one scholar puts it. According to the writer of Ezra Nehemiah, Cyrus's decree produced a second exodus. The return from Babylon might not have featured the supernatural acts that accompanied the first exodus, but God nonetheless brought his people back to the promised land after a lengthy absence. The implication of this migration is that the covenant God of Israel will resume the outworking of his plan of redemption through the descendants of Abraham to whom God announced the first exodus. And that in Ezra 6, we read about the exile celebrating the Passover is another echo of the Exodus. Look again at verses 20 and 21. 
the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. Now, the writer of Ezra, Nehemiah, presupposes, assumes, that his readers are familiar with what the Passover meal is and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that he refers to as well. And I'm sure that many of you have some familiarity with it, but just so that we can better understand the significance of this, I want to give a brief overview of the significance of the Passover meal. After Jacob and his descendants had moved into Egypt, the Israelites became so numerous over time that the Pharaoh at that time became nervous, worried that this population had grown so great within the borders of Egypt that they could, in the event that another nation was to war against them, these Hebrews might be an internal threat by allying themselves with this external threat. Consequently, he made them slaves and forced them into severe labor, a captivity which lasted for 430 years. God, after this time, calls Moses and Aaron, telling them to go to Pharaoh and to demand that he liberate his people so that they might go into the wilderness to worship him. And if you know the story, you know that at first Pharaoh is um, not too cooperative. And so as a result of this, God sends nine plagues of great severity, all of them preparatory for the 10th one, which was the climax. The 10th plague being that God was going to kill the firstborn son of every home in Egypt. And on the night that the Israelites were to leave Egypt, they were to eat a meal, the Passover meal. Now, we read in Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to look at select passages from there, but if you want to read it in its entirety, I suggest that you take some time to do so. These are the instructions that God gave to Moses concerning how this first Passover was to be observed. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households a lamb for each household. Skipping down in the chapter to verse six, the Lord says, you shall keep it, that is the lamb, until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with un unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So the blood of this lamb, as we read later, is to be taken with hyssop, which is a plant. The plant is dipped in the blood, and the Israelites were to take the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the entryway into their home. And they were to eat the lamb roasted that same night. They were to eat it with unleavened bread, bread that had, did not have yeast in it so that it would rise because they wouldn't have time for it to rise because they were to eat it in haste in preparation for their departure. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs, which was symbolic of the years, the centuries of slavery. In verse 11 of chapter 12 of Exodus, God says, now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, in other words, prepared, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We know from the account that that night was one of great, great terror and grief for the Egyptians. We read in the text that there was great wailing and grief as Egyptians would find the firstborn son in their home dead, including Pharaoh's. But while it was a time of grief for the Egyptians, the Passover meal was a time of joy for the Jews. It was supposed to be celebratory. In Exodus 12, verse 14, we read, now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now, after the Passover was eaten, there was to be seven days that were to be observed called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Homes had to be cleansed of all leaven or yeast because when the Israelites ate the first Passover meal, they had to do so in haste. And it was this feast that the returned exiles in Ezra 6 observed after celebrating the Passover. Going back to verse 22, we read, and they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. 
Now, we're going to get to the joy and the rejoicing in a bit, because that's really like the crescendo of this passage. But before we do that, we have to deal with something of an apparent chronological quandary. And that is this reference to God having turned the heart of the king of Assyria to encourage the Jews. Why the reference to the king of Assyria? At the time of the temple's completion, as I said in the beginning, Persia was the world power and Darius was the king. Some attribute this to a later scribal error. But I think biblical theologian James Hamilton offers a more satisfying explanation. Here's what he says. Ezra isn't confused here about the identity of the king. And he shows how it is that previously to this, there has been numerous references to the fact that Ezra is referring to Darius, king of Persia. The point of the reference to Assyria is the linkage of Assyria Babylon and Persia, all of which represent the evil empire over against the kingdom of God. Those who oppose Israel are identified with one another, just as Ezra identifies his own generation, because Ezra comes at some point later with the generation who returned to the land and successfully rebuilt the temple. So now, let's get to the joy and the rejoicing and the celebration. The returned exiles are not just said to have eaten the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, but they did so exuberantly. They were ecstatic. They were off the charts with celebration. And it wasn't because the hard labor was over and now they could just kick back. No, the text says it was because the Lord it caused them to rejoice. How? By turning Darius' Darius's heart in favor to them to encourage them in the work of the house of God. But the sentence doesn't end there. Don't gloss over those last four words. The God of Israel. What was so joyous about being back in Jerusalem? What was so worthy of celebration about eating the Passover and worshiping at the place that God had chosen for his name to dwell and his glory to be revealed? If you were to ask one of those Jewish people, they'd most likely say something like this. All of this is evidence that Yahweh is still our God. And we are still his people, despite our waywardness, despite the severity of the punishment he meted out to us by bringing us into exile and captivity. He hasn't given up on us. His covenant promises have not failed. One commentator says, the key theological issue that emerges in the book of Ezra is the continuity of God's purposes for Israel. Given that the return from exile fell far short of a return to pre-exilic status, was there any sense in which the earlier Israel could still sit, be said to exist? Did its God-given identity and purpose 
remain intact? Well, we know that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Can you imagine the singing, the dancing, the shouting, the laughter, the tears of joy, the awe at the steadfast love and mercy of Yahweh? Wouldn't you want to be in the midst of that? That's a trick question. Because as wonderful was their joy, I wouldn't want to trade places with them. In fact, I propose that we have more cause for joy and celebration than they did. How can that be? Because we know more of the story and we live on this side of the appearing of the one to whom everything in the short paragraph we just looked at pointed to. The temple was wonderful, but speaking of himself, Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. The priests who had ceremonially purified themselves were shadows of the only truly pure priest who never had any need to make an offering for sin for himself, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And that celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that overflowed with joy, urging Christians to pursue holiness, the Apostle Paul writes, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And it is by the blood of that sacrifice and by the resurrection of which we sang that God has made a new covenant with any and all who turn to Jesus for pardon and new life. And by that covenant, he promises I will be your God, and you will be my people. Verse 21 of Ezra 6 says that all those who purified themselves of the impurities of the nations and joined with Israel in order to seek the Lord ate the Passover. God's intent in choosing the Israelites was always to bless the nations through them. If you're here or you're watching online, you realize you are far from God. You realize that you have guilt before his infinite holiness. You through faith can enter into the joyous participation in Christ. You can partake of the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb with joy. And I would be glad to talk with you about that as with the pastors and elders of the church following the service. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ through faith, we have great reason to celebrate. God's good purpose for his people will never change. Regardless of your circumstances, as painful, confusing, disappointing as they might be, regardless of your sin, regardless of the severity of God's loving discipline, 
just as Israel celebrated with overflowing joy in the knowledge that God was their God, so too can we in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would perfect us in the art of celebration of, we sung, of which we sang. Lord, to know that we are free from condemnation in and through Christ. And Lord, how we thank you that that joy can be experienced even in the midst of pain by your power. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause the truth of Christ and his gospel to work deeply in our hearts and lead us to celebrate by the power of your spirit in anticipation of a joy that we cannot fully conceive of even now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.